You're listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. If we can go out and clean up, help another set of communities like the Heltzik and the Kitasuhehe and the Gitgat clean up their communities, we certainly can start cleaning up our own communities. And that's what I really like to see come out of this. That was Jonas Feynman talking about the six weeks that he and a group of other eco-tour captains spent cleaning up some of the remote islands in BC Central Coast. Jonas was hired to serve as captain of the Island Odyssey. But here on Cortez, his name is usually associated with another vessel. Jonas Feynman and Amy Bachner purchased the Misty Isles last year, but he'd already agreed to captain other vessels during the summer. So, Jonas explains. This was my first year just uh, specifically at the helm of, of Misty Isles. And yeah, it certainly did impact us. We were able to function for uh, about two and a half months of what is normally a four and a half month season. And we had some really good trips. We had reduced passenger numbers, a lot of details added on top of an industry that has a lot of moving parts to it anyways. So, um, but, but we made it. Yeah, we had some beautiful times out on the water with the uh, primarily BC residents. So we, we narrowed down our clientele uh, pool to people that were from the province. The Misty Isles wasn't the only sailboat impacted by COVID. There's a collective known as, the, oh, what are we calling it here? The Small Ship Tour Operators Association. And it primarily involved ecotourism, marine-based entities, such as what Misty Isles is. And it also reflects some of the vessels that I've run on the BC coast as captain for the last seven years. These are sailing vessels, converted tugboats, small passenger ships. They might have a a carrying capacity of six passengers. Some of the bigger ones are all the way up to 24. And the routes are more the remote north coast, Haida Gwaii, northern Vancouver Island, the central coast, all the outer islands to the east of Hecate Strait. So very uninhabited for the most part. They tend to be represented by Coast Salish, Shimshan, and Haida First Nations. And it's, it's a splendid place. It's unparalleled in terms of beauty and diverse ecosystems. And that group of operators had no season this year. It was primarily based upon the request of the local First Nations to not have visitors from outside of their communities showing up on the docks. And then as the global pandemic started really coming to its own fruition, uh, entities like Transport Canada, WorkSafe BC became involved. So essentially, the ecotourism industry on water for those bigger vessels was shut down. The draw for remote places is the lack of proverbial footprints on them. Um, 
the downside of that is that they don't get the same amount of attention as say maybe the beaches in English Bay or around Victoria or out in Tofino where there are lots of people who notice things like garbage on the beach. So it came down to guides and the small remote communities that are out there. We're talking uh, the Eltsa communities, the Kittisu and Heihei communities, the Gitgat communities. That was the focus of this marine debris removal initiative that came from the Small Ship Tour Operators Association. It was administered by another entity called the Wilderness Tourism Association. And it was ultimately funded by the government of Canada. So I am primarily focused on Misty Isles right now. That's the business and the vessel that uh, my wife Amy and I have, are now in charge of. But I do have uh, relationships with uh, other boat owners. I run other people's boats as well. Randy Burke of Blue Water Adventures, who's been a friend and an employer of mine for coming up on nine years now, called in the spring and basically relayed to me that uh, the whole fleet, in this case, it represents uh, boats based out of Victoria, Mill Bay, Vancouver, the Columbia 3, which is Ross Campbell's operation. He's our neighbor on Sonora Island. These are, are, are the fleet that... Uh, that compose our running partners up and down the coast in Haida Gwaii, in the Great Bear Rainforest, up by the Alaska border, etc. So all of those boats were um, tied to the dock. There was nine in total that took part in this 45-day expedition on the central coast. They employ upwards of 100 people. So that's 100 people that were out of work. I'd like to think of boats as like uh, animals, basically. A horse does not like to be tied to the tree for too long. You need to take the horse out and run it. And it's very much the same with boats. So the idea of putting an idea to paper came from um, a colleague of mine named Russell Markell, who runs Outer Shores Expeditions out of Cowichan Bay. And it was forwarded to the powers that be that in this period of unemployment, essentially, we should take advantage of the skill set that all of these crews and the vessels that they work on have and could provide to the shoreline and the issue of uh, marine debris. Every year, 8.8 um, .8 million tons of garbage goes into the water and that's garbage going into the water. That doesn't represent garbage that's already in the water. So some of us might be familiar with our ocean gyres or basically our, our ocean eddies. These are bodies of still water in between the currents where debris has been collecting for probably millennia. And we're looking at seagrasses, wood, and then on into plastics and Harley-Davidson motorcycles and all sorts of stuff. And we've heard stories, I think, mostly um, for the, for the wide, wider public after the uh, earthquake, tsunami, and related disasters in Fukushima, the appearance of garbage on beaches, there was, uh, there was kind of an increase for a period of time after that. And that started getting everybody's attention focused on a, a long-running issue, which is people throwing stuff not in the right place. Human beings have been doing that for since time immemorial, but it's our products that have changed. So rather than plant and animal-based detritus turning into nice black soil, we've got plastic that simply doesn't go away. Uh, in fact, what it does is it just gets smaller and smaller 
and therefore more insidious, which is where the theme of microplastics comes into play. After rusted Outer Shores expeditions got the ball rolling, the other tour operators started kind of hatching a plan. And the first step was to immediately get in touch with our First Nations neighbors on the Central Coast. So there was an area that was chosen specifically because of its remoteness and its lack of consistent publicized stewardship. The communities in Bella Bella and Clem Two and Hartley Bay this is something that they've been dealing with for well, as long as they've been there. But having an opportunity and a government-funded opportunity to take advantage of boats that are self-sufficient enough to not have to go visit these communities. So we still wanted to respect the wishes of the Heltzik and the Kittisuheihei and the Gitgat um, by not having to go to their communities for things like fresh water and fuel and supplies. That's the nature of these operations is go out for three weeks and um, all we really do is uh, pick up new passengers. So obviously that wasn't happening this year. So I think August 17th, the boat started mobilizing. Naturally, there's a bit of bureaucracy involved in um, receiving grants. So the government wanted to make a formalized announcement about the project, which uh, the acronym is MRDMI, it stands for Marine Oh, MDRI, sorry, Marine Debris Removal Initiative. So we were supposed to kind of be quiet about it. But the longer we waited as captains, we're watching that summertime weather window start to shrink. So Hecate Strait is a pretty formidable body of water, and it served as basically the regulatory board for how much work it could get done. So as we waited for the government to make the announcement, which would essentially greenlight the publicity element, of the program. We watch the daylight hours get shorter and shorter. The low pressure systems start coming in from the Pacific. So I think the first boots on the ground were roughly mid-August. And our last day at work was on the 26th of September. So it was basically broken into two expeditions, nine ships, community here might recognize the the maple leaf the passing cloud the island roamer the swell they're all vancouver island vancouver based touring vessels roughly 100 crew members from all those ships and then another between 75 and 100 paid community members from clem to bella bella and hartley bay and the plan was is that the self-sufficient touring vessels would take the offshore sites Aristobal Island, Price Island, Calvert Island, the Goose Group. Uh, it's a huge archipelago up there. Some of the islands don't even have names. Some have numbers, some have big names, and some just have, you know, the <laughs> Boomerang Island or whatever, something that, that sounds what it looks like. So the First Nations communities, in order to uh, protect their communities not participating in the project, they took the shorelines closer to the villages, essentially. And those of us not coming from those communities stayed more out on the periphery. And we were working with um, Heltzik Horizons, which provided the tug and bar. That's an outfit out of Bella Bella, part of the Heltzik community. So the tug and barge, the barge was affectionately called Large Marge Barge. 
And on the back deck of the barge were two sea containers for the bunkering of aviation fuel for the helicopter. The first week or so, coordination became a very apparent necessity. We're all buddies out there, even though we represent different uh, companies. I think the Mariner Code transcends economic competition. But to have everybody come together the way they did was one of the more profound uh, experiences that I've had on the coast. Hundreds of people working together very effectively in, in very trying conditions. So the beaches, when we say beach as mariners, we just kind of mean land. It doesn't mean a nice sandy beach. It can be rocky. It can be cliffs. So uh, making sure that we were spread out uh, efficiently covering the 1,000 kilometers of shoreline, which we did indeed cover, was the first part. Protocols around working with helicopters, not uh, some of us have done that, but not everybody knows what it's like to get out of the way of a tether and um, how to keep everybody on land safe and how to keep the helicopter pilot safe as well. So there was a learning curve, but once the uh, wheels got moving, it was quite the thing to be a part of. The larger vessels would serve as motherships, and we would deploy in uh, Zodiac type, type inflatable, rigid hauled inflatable boats. And that's, that is what would get the crews to shore. A simple fish scale and some burlap sacks was the first part of collecting small debris. And we would have to weigh everything to make sure that the final parcel was not too heavy for the helicopter. I think we covered by the end. Uh, September 27th, sorry about the telephone there. We had 127 tons uh, bagged and onto the barge. So it was 45 days of hard work, a lot of complexities, not just with the, uh, the industrial side of it, the boats and the helicopters, but, but the weather and the tides. Some of those big bags of jetsam essentially had to be left above the high tide line as well as the, the high wave line for uh, up to a couple of weeks before the helicopter and the barge could get close enough to it to actually harvest it. There was a lot of moving parts. What was a typical work day like? The typical work day at sea kind of revolves around the uh, weather forecasting. So that part of the coast, you're not in cellular range. So you're, you're doing it in the traditional way of hovering around a very high frequency radio and the Environment Canada weather reports. So the, the morning one comes out at four. So usually the captains are kind of up around then seeing what the natural world is going to offer you. Then it moves into just the logistics of who's going to what beach, how many kilograms of lift bags are on that particular beach, checking with the helicopter pilot, just some of the kind of behind the scenes stuff. And then the really important one was making sure that everybody's fed and rested. I think we did a superb job of the shore-based injuries to just a handful of bumps and bruises and scrapes. I don't think anybody got sent home. Again, you're oftentimes trying to summit a mountain of driftwood just to get to where you have an area to start working. And uh, the crews that were on the shore were out for the duration of the day. If it was a particularly busy day, we'd start early and work one shoreline and then reconvene back on the mothership to reposition and do another islet. So when you get into some of those smaller island chains, it's, it's a lot of hustling and moving around and then also just looking out for people.
none of it would have been a success if we'd have had a lot of injuries or, or people had been grumpy because they didn't get enough to eat or something like that. You got to take care of the people so they can take care of everything else. What kind of food would you be eating? In the in a typical season, um, all of these uh, passenger vessels, the the crew dynamic includes a five star chef. So we didn't have five star chefs on these trips, but one of the parts of being a good guide is having cooking in your skill set. So we did have guides that had expressed an interest or a certain prowess in cooking, but healthy nutrition, bulk, you can't exist on junk food and expect to be able to maintain a workload like that. So obviously when you're spending that much time away from reprovisioning points, I think the first week and a bit of each expedition is where most of the salad gets eaten <laughs> trying to keep uh, fresh produce preserved for a long period of time as we all know can be challenging yeah a lot of, a lot of protein and um it depended on what boat you were on and a lot of food trading of course that quickly became a pastime you know some of the cooks would have bake-offs and then cruise around with their goods in the anchorage and trade. So uh, again, food can be a very bonding experience as part of the human experience. And, and it certainly was with us out there. So how long would the average workday be? Well, obviously the days got shorter as the summer faded into fall, but it was dawn to dusk. So 12 plus hours a day. I think one of my more memorable evenings was towards the end of the second expedition. So this is coming into late September. And we were working down by McInnes Island, which is this fabled light station on the central coast. It faces basically across Hecate Strait and out to the Pacific, the southern end of Haida Gwaii. And uh, we had worked a full day, it was beautiful weather. We covered a lot of shoreline. I think we had probably uh, up to a hundred lift bags leave the beach and go to the barge. And so on a typical day like that, when the weather all comes together, you've got the nine passenger ships, which is a mix of sailing boats and tugboats and power boats. And then you've got the barge sort of looming on the horizon with the tug. And the barge, by the end of the trip, had just this mountain of these big, white, heavy-duty garbage bags on it. So it was kind of being followed by a snowcap or a cloud or, you know, provide the analogy. The helicopter does not fly in the dark. So that day had been so productive. And I think there were four of us, five boats, kind of in the southern end of this island that we were working. And it got dark and the helicopter landed on the barge for the night. And we all decided we were going to keep working. So headlamps went on. It was a beautiful, warm, totally still night. I mean, the sea state really facilitated this. But we ended up reparceling, uh, I think, up to 20 of these large lift bags. I mean, these are like the size of a Volkswagen bug sometimes. They're big bags. But we rolled them into our little Zodiacs in the dark. And then we took them over to a vessel known as Cascadia. It's part of Maple Leaf Adventures. And it's a 125-plus foot power catamaran. It's like a little cruise ship. They have a really big deck crane on the back deck and the owner and operator, Kevin Smith said, all right, if you guys are going to work into the dark, we're going to hang out here by the lighthouse and you just bring the garbage to us and we'll put it on the back deck of our boat. And so suddenly it's 10 o'clock at night and the moon's coming up and this little fleet of rubber boats with giant bags of garbage and headlamps on is uh, coming alongside this massive luxury yacht 
and trading garbage, which is not something you see in a normal cruising season with passengers. And the back deck of the Cascadia was stacked with these lift bags, which the helicopter picked up the next day, but uh, really was um, the epitome of mothershipping. And to see crews that you've worked alongside for many years and just the hard work and, and the positivity of it was really my most profound moment. And I think a lot of people are going to remember that night at McKinnis. Garbage picking in the dark on an empty island. What could you do when you were not working? There's always something to do on a boat. If you can't find something to do, you're not looking hard enough. That's the old adage. But it was also preparing for the next day. So maybe repositioning the mothership, whether it's a sailboat or a tugboat. In our case, it's a, the Island Odyssey was my vessel. So it's a 70-foot um, catch rig motor sailor. So yeah, you're just you're looking to the next day. You're always looking ahead. You're looking at the weather. You're assessing your crew. You're making sure that they get enough rest, that they get enough to eat, that they're happy. <laughs> you're, you're protecting your investment, essentially. And then towards the end of the expedition, we really did see that summer fall weather window pinch shut on us. And then it became an issue of the last bags got off of Princess Louisa Island, which is it's not the smallest, but it's a small little no-name island down by the Goose Group. And we had basically 18 hours to cover 130 miles or something like that before the weather around North Vancouver Island would have prohibited safe passage. So that became the next part of it. Not a lot of time for rest unless you get shut down by the weather. And by the end of the expedition, being shut down by the weather can last for weeks. So we moved our way down to Calvert Island. And I think we made it across Queen Charlotte Strait and Queen Charlotte Sound in about uh, 14 hours, I think. And by the time we got into uh, Port McNeil, the weather was really nice. And the next morning it was horrible again. So we just, we snuck through. And I think the barge with uh, 127 tons of lift bags, they were delayed by a couple of days because of that weather system stretched from September 25th until the 28th, I believe. And the barge showed up into Port Hardy a few days after that weather event. And that is where the bulk of the garbage um, ends up. Sadly, at a landfill, there was, um, there's only so much that you can repurpose, although it's pretty amazing what you can do with some of the fishing gear now. There's a, an outfit in Steveston that can repurpose old nets and line that is recovered. I think they turn it into some sort of component for refrigerator insulation. So it's neat to see that we're starting to have more facilities that can do that. But the, the real deal is, is that our dependency on plastics and all of its uh, relatives, you know, the polystyrenes and the water bottles, that's something that needs to change because there's not a comprehensive response to entirely recycling all that stuff. Why should the rest of us care about what you've just done? What, what's important about it? You just started to answer it. If you're going to frame it in terms of um, Vancouver Island-based operators, if we can go out and clean up, help another set of communities like the Heltzik and the Kitasuhehe and the Gitgat clean up their communities, we certainly can start cleaning up our own communities. And that's what I really like to see come out of this. I know that there are a lot of people that do get that and put in the work, whether it's just picking up what you can when you're on the beach walking your dog or organizing 
more of a formalized approach to it, which is, you know, how we got this thing going involving the right kinds of boats and um, the right kinds of experience. But I was really happy to see the government get involved for once. You can have your readers or your listeners explore this more just by looking up marine debris removal initiative. Uh, Social media has got some fantastic photos of this. We knew going into this that branding of this had to actually be a big part of it in order to spread the word. Because otherwise it would have just been some sort of barely visible effort out in the bush by people that live mostly out in the bush. You know, our stories don't always make it to the bigger public. Sure, the passengers that are with us and the relationships between the guides and the communities that that we basically exist with up there, those stories are, are fantastic. But the optics for this needed to be bigger and more widespread. And what I'd like to see come out of that is um, a little bit of pressure onto not just our federal and provincial governments, but our, our regional districts to support little moves like this. I mean, imagine if we could get each district or each municipality sponsoring at least an annual cleanup of local shorelines. If you start tethering a lot of moves like that together, then you're getting somewhere. Then you're actually cleaning up the coast and not cleaning up just the beach in front of Tofino or just the beach in front of Kitsilano. Garbage doesn't care about where you live. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. And we need to look at it that way and, and take it seriously that way. I know that I've certainly been very inspired to try and start promoting things around Cortez and the Discovery Islands. With Misty Isles, I know that there's going to be no shortage of interest in it. So I think it has been inspiring to a lot of people, this uh, debris removal initiative that happened in August and September. And I'm certainly uh, have been inspired by it. So I think what I'd like to see happen is that the level of positivity and cohesion that came from something as basic as stopping and picking up garbage. I want that to to remain charged uh, so that we can keep doing this because we've got a lot of work to do, not just in terms of rehabilitating ourselves and our planet, but simply cleaning up so that we can have a a tidy platform to start moving forward with some new ways, perhaps. You've been listening to an interview with Jonas Feynman, who was captain of the Island Odyssey during the BC coastal cleanup this summer. But it is better known to all of us as captain of the Misty Isles. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. <laughs>